This is the Monday, March 13th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, we step into the TARDIS and travel back to a time when the United Kingdom wasn't so united and faced a rebellion in the late 1600s. Leading this uprising to seize the crown is Charles II's illegitimate son, James Scott, the first Duke of Monmouth. Joining us to dust off the Duke's reputation and give us a real picture of this much maligned figure is Dr. Anna Kay, author of The Last Royal Rebel, The Life and Death of James, Duke of Monmouth. Dr. Kay earned her PhD on court ceremonial in the reign of Charles II at the University of London and acted as curator for historic royal palaces as well as Properties Presentation Director of English Heritage. Today, she's Director of the Landmark Trust, a charity that rescues and restores historic buildings and turns them into places for all of us to holiday among the memories and ghosts of the past. You can find them at Landmark Trust on Twitter and at landmarktrust.org.uk next time you're planning a -a one-of-a-kind vacation. You can learn more about our guest and her previous books at annakay.co.uk. That last name is spelled K-E-A-Y. And she has a Twitter account, too. It's at Anna Landmark. Okay, now that the old TARDIS machine has reached the 6th of July, 1685, and the last battle fought on English soil, let's step out and meet the last royal rebel. I'm joined on the line from England by Dr. Anna Kay, author of The Last Royal Rebel, The Life and Death of James, Duke of Monmouth. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Great pleasure. Let's start with your phrase, adored bastard son, because there's a lot of exposition in those three words for the Duke. Which of those things or what combination drew you to decide you'd live as an author with James Scott for the four years it took you to write The Last Royal Rebel? Well, it's a really good question, isn't it? It's quite interesting about whether you could really put your finger on the point of genesis of any project. I started off because I suppose I was curious about a figure who always was kind of in the scene, if you like, in the late Stuart Court, which is a period and a place that I worked on quite a lot, but which uh, someone who I didn't know much about um, and who seemed to have a very sort of cartoony 
reputation, if you like, or, or, or just to strike a slightly kind of caricature figure insofar as you ever came across him, which is to say he was, you know, incredibly handsome, which is what people said about him, and very overindulged and rather ridiculous figure. And I just sort of had a hunch that there was probably more to it than that. And I also had a hunch that somebody whose life was lived to a quite a large degree in the court, which is a sort of an environment that doesn't tend to attract praise and honourable attributes in the way that you, know, you might do if your career was made on the battlefield or in the law courts or something. It, you know, somebody whose life was lived in the court uh, tended to be somebody who would be considered to be probably a bit of a sycophant and, you know, unnecessarily kind of concerned with clothing and perfume and curtsies and all that sort of stuff. And because I'm very interested in courts, I sort of had a suspicion again that there was probably more to it than that. So it was really because I suppose he was somebody around who I'd seen, as it were, in my wanderings in that world, and who I felt that the general sort of verdict on was probably not the whole story. But I think it's also true to say that I didn't really have any idea of the extent to which that would turn out to be, to my mind, so very much the case, which it did as the project wore on. I love that kind of figure in history, and I love the authors that go and find them and say, after half a day, for instance, Charles Learson of looking into the baseball player Ty Cobb, he said he discovered that all the things about him, all the stories were really misreporting and the result of one hack sports writer, a hack biographer. And this is the case here to a large extent. The reason why is, as the old saying goes, if you try to kill the king, you'd better not miss because yeah. because James Scott fails, his reputation suffers. The victors write the history books and nobody wants to be associated with him and they sort of take any of the glory later when plots do succeed for themselves. So you list many of those things in the book and you take up for the guy. We all want those things written about us or would want them. <laughs> if somebody was saying we were horrible people in a 100 years, you'd want somebody to take the time to set our record straight. Even a description under a museum portrait you include in The Last Royal Rebel is unfavorable and inaccurate. And I wondered what the first steps you took were in crafting the true story when there's so many mistakes in the historical record. Well, I just did a very straightforward thing, which is really what I always do when I'm doing any kind of research, which is I set entirely to one side every secondary source that there was, all the kind of biographies such as they were and accounts of his life written afterwards. And I simply set out to read and to transcribe every single thing that I could find. And I think well, I hope I found most of them, I'd like to think I'd found them all, that was said about him or by him in his lifetime. So what I wanted to do was to sort of separate entirely the judgment of later generations of people who didn't know him on him and to sort of, you know, a bit like if you're sort of boiling something down, you know, boil off the bones of the truth, all the stuff which was other people's comments on him, which were born of something other than their own personal experience of him. So I gathered together everything that I could find, his account books, his bills that he paid for things that he bought, letters that he wrote, things that were written about him at the time, all of that stuff, which seemed to me to be first-hand material of one sort or another, which was almost all in manuscript. And I thought, if I can just gather together all of that, that will be sort of something like the sum of what there is to know about this person from that, that survives from the period. And what I want to do is, having done that, to try and take a clear-headed view of what this tells us about this person that is un-kind of guided by what people might and did indeed say later on. 
So that was my sort of methodology, if you like. I also like that idea of going back to the primary sources. I think that that's an important aspect of historical research that we forget sometimes. A bad history book, as Charles Learson, who I just mentioned of the Ty Cobb book, said is a book that just quotes other books rather than go back to the beginning. And it reminds me of a Times of London quote I have here about your book. It says, the strength of this admirable biography is that it makes the reader consider Monmouth from Monmouth's point of view, without the benefit of hindsight, unquote. What was his plan here to depose his uncle, and what makes him take up arms here? What political, religious issues? There's a lot going on here at the time, because as David McCullough says, people back then didn't know they were living back then. So put us in his shoes and tell us what makes him rebel. Well, it's a big question, but I, I think you know, at its root, the rebellion that Monmouth led, and of course, you know, in even in calling it a rebellion, it's a bit like calling an uprising a mutiny. Everyone's making a, a value judgment about it being a rebellion rather than a revolution. But anyway, in leading the invasion that he led in 1685, he was doing something which was about as much as anything else what those that he had formed political partnerships with were determined to persuade him to do. I mean, the context, of course, is that his father, King Charles II, had just died, had declined incredibly quickly inside one week in his 50s. And without a child, a legitimate child, Monmouth was his illegitimate, eldest illegitimate child, the throne passed to Monmouth's uncle, Charles II's younger brother, uh, James II, who was a Catholic and a highly authoritarian um, kind of ruler, a very different figure from that of his brother. And there was in England a, a tremendously strong feeling that this was the kind of um, basically the end of civilization in Britain, because, of course, the popular experience of a Catholic with fairly kind of authoritarian views taking over was that of Mary Tudor the century before. And people were turning to Monmouth, who was the eldest, as I say, of Charles II's illegitimate children, and saying they will be burning people in the streets once again. Protestants will be being burnt alive, and only you can save England. And it honour and your countrymen are looking to you to save us. So the rebellion or the the invasion itself was born in part of a an incredibly strong sort of moral almost blackmail that was exerted on Monmouth to do this. Now, the point being that he needed no persuading that James II would be a terrible king, and as indeed he turned out to be. Monmouth was totally clear about that. What he was sceptical about was their chances of actually succeeding in invading England, because he had run the army himself for the best part of 10 years. He knew exactly what the risks were, uh, which were very great in a very conservative age. And so he had started off firmly of the view that although it was incredibly uh, regrettable that James II had succeeded, and indeed he may even have poisoned Charles II, that probably rebellion was a very bad idea. And he he was persuaded during the course of a few weeks in the spring of 1685 out of his initial determination not to be involved in an invasion. He was persuaded to do it. And I think the reason that he was persuaded, whereas, say, for example, William of Orange, who might also have invaded then, was not, was because these arguments about what honour requires and about everybody's expectation that he should lead, sort of arguments made more to the heart than the head, if you like, were ones that Monmouth was particularly susceptible to because he was very 
He had a very acute sense of honour. And so he set about trying to make it work, trying to make an armed invasion get off the ground once it got to England. But it was an enterprise I think that he fundamentally knew was doomed from the start. But he went nonetheless. We spoke about the Duke's early life a little bit or invoked it, him being an illegitimate child. Talk about this tug of war between his parents. Well, Monmouth, and I'm going to call him that, although he wasn't a duke at this stage, was born to, his parents were both 18 when he was conceived. And so he was born to very young parents and parents who had just had a kind of night of passion. There wasn't a proper relationship there. And it was when Charles II, as he would become, was in exile just before the execution of Charles I, that a sort of steamy night was spent by the young Charles with a very beautiful, also British exile in the Low Countries. And the, and the product was uh, her being pregnant and the birth of this boy. And that was sort of fine. And illegitimate children were not at all unusual in very high status families at this period. But the trouble was that as the little boy grew up, as Monmouth grew up, his mother, who I'm afraid was somebody who one longs to write a rehabilitation of, but actually the evidence does not bear it out. She was <laughs> a pretty uh, nasty piece of work. I mean, she herself had a difficult life, so one can think of an explanation, but nonetheless she was. And as her behaviour got more and more erratic and indeed criminal, the fact that she had with her the child of Charles II, became a sort of PR disaster for him. Because, of course, he, this is the 1650s now, England is a republic. He, Charles, Monmouth's father, was living in exile and trying desperately to persuade foreign princes and indeed various you know, loyal forces in England to back him to invade England. Meanwhile, Oliver Cromwell and his gang were busy pumping out anti-royalist propaganda in London. And it was sort of absolute grist to the mill of this anti-royalist propaganda that this child existed and that his mother was a violent and disreputable woman because it played into the hands of the Republicans about the Stuart monarchy being a sort of debauched and debased form of rulership, which everyone was glad to be rid of. So in these circumstances, Charles II became more and more and more embarrassed by the news reports that were coming out of The Hague, which is where she was living, that his former lover and mother of his child, Lucy Walter, was you know, trying to get involved in plots to murder various people and prostitution was insinuated and various other things. And so um, after various attempts to persuade her to hand over the boy, he went for a pretty drastic approach, which was to commission the kidnap of the child. And not just once, he tried or his agents tried on at least three occasions to snatch the boy. And they eventually succeeded when he was eight. So it makes a great tale. But in thinking of this man, as he would grow up to be, of the impact of being brought up in this incredibly erratic household by his mother, um, beautiful, uh, but brittle and violent, but nonetheless the only family member he had, and then to be violently snatched from her as he was, as a boy and then never to see her again. I mean, it's pretty hard not to feel that that would have quite an impact on the kind of emotional makeup of a person. He had never met his father at that point or met him only when he was very, very young? He met him a couple of times, once as a baby, which he wouldn't have remembered. And then again, when he was about seven years old. But very little is known about what happened at these meetings. Other than that, Charles II seems to have begun to form an idea that this was a child that he might take an interest in. But it wasn't an idea that would really 
gain any kind of mileage until he was a bit older. I mean, the kidnap was absolutely nothing to do with Charles II wanting Monmouth. He just wanted Lucy, Monmouth's mother, neutralised. And by removing the child, she just became another ne'er-do-well. She wasn't connected to him. And it would only be when Monmouth was about 13 that Charles II, as it were, re-met him. He had been given to one of Charles II's friends. Uh, he'd been put in his household and um, sort of become his guardian. And Charles II, literally on his way to Breda, where the deal would be done for the restoration of the monarchy, Charles II stopped with his friend in the household where Monmouth was lodged and spent a fortnight there. And that was the moment at which a connection was made between father and son that would become the sort of mainstay of certainly Monmouth's life and arguably of Charles II's as well. Currently here in New York City, the musical Hamilton is a smash hit on Broadway. And so Hamilton is in the air everywhere, Alexander Hamilton. And as I was reading The Last Royal Rebel, it occurred to me there were many sort of connections there, not only the being part of the monarchy, being a royalist, but Alexander Hamilton was also illegitimate. He was handsome and dashing. He was a military figure. He's born outside the country that he ends up coming to. He's not born in, in America. And so I thought of him trying to overthrow his own British king at the time. So for American listeners who are more familiar with Hamilton probably than any time since before he died, really, certainly in 200 years, what parallels might we find in their journeys from this real poverty with no father being born illegitimate, but just really having a lot of talents? What do you think that they have in common, if you've thought about that at all? I don't feel qualified really to, to talk about Hamilton in any kind of, you know, <laughs> very scholarly way. I do think that being the son of a king is a different thing from being a talented person who, you know, might have been born on the wrong side of the tracks in some sense and, and finds their way to greatness. I mean, had Monmouth not been Charles II's child, I do not think that he would have ended up in the situation that he was in by long chalk. I mean, he was somebody who had great talents. He was an incredibly accomplished athlete, became a great leader of men and a soldier. He wasn't kind of naturally a political creature. He wasn't somebody who would have found his way to a senior position in the government, I don't think, had it not been for the fact that he was a member of the royal family. And so he was thrust into the centre of things from a young age and had in his relationship with his father this unbreakable bond. I mean, he's much more like a favourite of some description, somebody who, in a sense, although they have abilities, it's not necessarily their abilities that have taken them places. It is their relationship with a single, the single powerful person. So one might think about the relationship, if you're a medievalist, between Piers Gaveston and Edward II, or between the Duke of Buckingham and James I. It's about love between somebody who is unassailably in charge and another person and I think that was what Monmouth's sort of basis of his place and at the heart of things was about that which is in a sense what drew me to it so much because it's the intersection between intensely personal human relationships of the sort one experiences in life with your spouse or your children or whatever and these massive issues to do with nationhood and form of government and religious settlements and so on. So although in a sense there might be a superficial uh, similarity, I think that the context is very different for these two, despite some of the similarities. 
It's significant to me that you say the royal aspect plays such a role, because I think reading it from my perspective, which is a reason people here in America can enjoy the book, it's not a lot about titles and things. It's a human story. And that's what jumped out at me is here's a here's a rebel. Here's somebody who's kind of a reluctant warrior. That's what one of the reviewers says, is that you have a natural ability to craft a narrative here and to do dialogue and things really an attractive person. You kind of find yourself rooting for him, even though you know from the subtitle that he's doomed. Yes, exactly. And I do think that that is a, you know, there's a, as well as that being an enjoyable thing about reading a book. And I I find that sort of thing enjoyable in in reading myself. But it also, of course, speaks to a, a huge truth about this period in European history, indeed in North American history, which is to say, the ruling elite who basically call the shots, and they do, is a tiny group of people. And the relationships between them are not simply relationships to do with politics or to do with careers or the kind of professional sphere, whatever that might be, business or trade or or governing a country. They are also human relationships about the very personal because with an elite of that size, everybody is connected to everybody else in some way. They've married into each other's families. They've had some kind of encounter which has been personal. They've stayed in each other's houses. They've in some way experienced one another in a personal sense. And I think that with that comes both friendships that can make things that you think would never happen, happen. And it can also make enmities that become profound, even when you think on the face of it, these two people surely ought to have been on the same side. And it's incredibly interesting in the case of the Duke of Monmouth, because of course, there's the royal family, you know, King one and you know Charles II, and he dies and James II, his brother becomes king and so on. And William III follows him. And we've all seen the list on our kind of rulers or on the charts on the wall or whatever at school. But of course, these people were brothers, they were cousins, they grew up together, they fell in love together, they fought at each other's sides in battles, they hauled each other off the battlefield, they were godparents to each other's children, they went to parties together, they watched people they loved dying together. I mean, one of the things so moving to me is reading about when the Duke of Monmouth's own son, first son, who was called Charles after his father, who he was so delighted at the birth of, then fell ill and he, Monmouth, sat at the side of the cradle of this little boy, this tiny little infant. And Charles II heard he was ill and went to be with the Duke of Monmouth as his son was dying and the two sat together in this vigil. And it just reminds you that just because it was a long time ago, people didn't feel any less grief-stricken or thwarted or, or hurt whatever it might be. And when those relationships exist within a hereditary monarchy, (laughs) you know, they get amplified into these huge things about what happens to a country. And that, to me, seemed to be completely fascinating. And in The Duke of Monmouth, I felt his life was a kind of, as well as being incredibly interesting in its own terms, was a sort of a keyhole to which you could press your eye and glimpse through it the actual nature of things in late 17th century Europe insofar as um, they were played out politically through the Stuart family. So I suppose that's one of the great joys of this period is that there's enough material around to really understand these people from the genuine primary material, not just from your own supposition and filling in the gaps, really from the primary record, to understand these people as people, and then to understand how their strengths and failings and hang-ups and prejudices could play out on an international stage. Those family relationships and the feelings people had in the past, I just love that because 
these pictures that we have, we don't have pictures from back then, but often black and white and the ones that we do have very old pictures. And you have a painting sort of, I said to you before we started recording that the Duke on the cover, he was looking at me and saying, come on, when are you going to, when are you going to talk to my author? When are you going to tell my story, set my record straight? And as for pressing an eye to that keyhole, being in these places where great events happened, where these people had a moving experience like a child dying or birth or whatever it was or a confrontation or the abduction, those are places we can walk and we can feel closer to that historic moment. And that's something you do in the Landmark Trust, which offers vacationers this chance to live in historic buildings, to go there and stay for a vacation. That's truly a trip into the past. And as I've heard you state when I was researching, you stayed there with your children and they didn't even mention the television once. That was your quote, I think, which seems incredible here in 2017. So I wanted you to describe a little bit how sites like that can help us experience the times of the figures we meet in books like The Last Royal Rebel? Uh, That's a very good question. Well, one of the things that's extraordinary about Great Britain, I think this probably applies to other contexts, but I'll I'll talk about the world I know, is that although, of course, the past has gone and we will never see Queen Elizabeth I walking across our lawn or or be able to witness the Mayflower sailing or whatever it is, amazingly, if we think of the past as a performance or like a movie or, or a play, although the drama itself, the characters themselves, the actors will never reappear on the stage, we do still have the stage. And that is an extraordinary and astonishing thing, which is to say the number of historic buildings, landscapes, environments that survive, which were there during the lives of our forefathers is eye-watering. I'm sitting at my desk at the moment in Berkshire, which is just outside London, and I'm looking out on an absolutely beautiful 19th century fountain, and beyond it is a church that was built in 1348 when the Black Death was raging. And whilst I can't summon up the figures of the mid-14th century, I can see the world that they saw. And in so doing and considering that, you can almost touch the past. And indeed, in a way, you can touch the past, because I can put my hand on that wonderful church wall. So with that notion in mind, I'm lucky enough to run a wonderful charity that we have here in the UK called the Landmark Trust. And what we do is we take on wonderful old historic buildings, of which we have an amazing range here in the UK. We take on ones which have fallen on hard times for some reason, might be derelict or be imperiled. And we very carefully restore them. And then once we've restored them, they are places that you can rent for a week or part of a week or two weeks to stay in with your family. In so doing, you can kind of inhabit that past. It is absolutely wonderful because what it means is that history and what happened in the past isn't something simply then something that you experience cerebrally, if you like, through reading about it or in some other way kind of fueling your brain and filling it with information about a subject. You can sleep in the space that you know, whoever it be, a, a miller from the Middle Ages, a 18th century cotton mill worker, a lighthouse keeper, a castle squire, whatever it is. And you can see the building, not in, exactly as they saw it, because, you know, you have beds and kitchens and bathrooms and things in these buildings, but very much to a degree as they saw it. And of course, that means that it's something which affects you visually and the smell of the building, the quality of the light. All of those things which are not simply about the brain, but about your whole person. And it's completely wonderful. And it's it's a great 
way if you want to enjoy an experience of the past without it being rather didactic, you know, rather sort of something that you have to to you know know your kings and queens and your presidents and your you know dates and everything for it's something which is can simply be experiential it's a great joy and people 50,000 people a year stay in our buildings and if you come to the UK rather than staying in a faceless international hotel you could stay in a 18th century silk workers house or you could stay in John Betjeman's own flat or you could stay in a castle and that's what people do and it's what I enjoy doing with my own family, as you quoted, it's something which transports you out of the modern world completely, really. And really, they're not dying for TV or for the smartphone or anything else. They're really into it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure my children are completely typical insofar as <laughs> <laughs> they don't have an iPad and they don't really watch television anyway. But I know that one of the things that people really enjoy about staying in our buildings is that we very deliberately dial down all of that stuff. And in a world where people spend their entire lives glued to their phones, and I do too, I'm not immune to this, actually to be in an environment where you light the fire, you light the candles, your dog, if you've got one, can lie down in front of the fire and you can play cards or read books or play games. And it's about doing that together as a group. It's just such a tonic, such a tonic. And it makes your heart leap to remember that that sort of time spent together is possible. The website, by the way, is landmarktrust.org.uk, and you can follow them at Landmark Trust on Twitter. My guest is Dr. Anna Kay. She's the author of The Last Royal Rebel, The Life and Death of James, Duke of Monmouth. You can visit her online at annakay.co.uk and on Twitter at Anna Landmark. That last name is K-E-A-Y. The UK Telegraph writes, quote, Anna Kay has written a superb biography, which paints a vivid picture of the times and of her subject. She has an instinctive feel for character and place, and combines elegant prose with a novelistic gift for narrative. Above all, she has rescued this much-traduced and forgotten royal rebel from the backwaters and set him once more at the center of one of Britain's great historical whirlpools, unquote. I want to focus on the Telegraph's description of your instinct, something I mentioned before about this idea of building a narrative. This is not dry history. It's a compelling figure. As someone with so many academic accomplishments, I wonder how you ensure that The Last Royal Rebel appeals to contemporary readers who maybe never sat in a formal history class. Yeah, that was really important to me. As you say, I had a fairly straight academic journey and doing a PhD and you know I've written several pretty straight academic books on various things but I really really wanted this to be a book which would have all of that authority which is to say the quality of the research and the sort of background to anything I'd be saying would be absolutely as high as if you were reading a article in a, in a sort of august academic journal but that the story should be told in a way that made you feel these were real people and these were real times and I partly felt that because I thought that's the sort of book that I would want to read why should it have to be a choice whether you read something that's right or something that's readable it should be possible to write something that is both academically correct and sort of rigorous but also that makes the most of and helps you see the poignancy and the drama and the ups and the downs of what was, as I've said, a very sort of human story. But also it struck me that one thing that you can do and which I felt that I could probably do is to summon up for people or try and summon up for people what this world was like. 
not simply, you know, the Duke of X said something or other, the Duke of Y, mm. but where were they? What did it look like? What were they wearing? You know, what was that scene like if I was to be suddenly thrown into it? What would be the things that I would be struck by? And not simply to let all of those sort of disappear. And because, again, we a lot of these buildings survive, places where things happen. And I was lucky enough for many years to be a curator of our royal palaces here in London. So I worked on historic buildings used by the sort of royal court a lot. And wonderfully surviving in our national archives are all the account books for every single bit of repair or refurbishment that ever happened to any of these royal buildings. So you literally know what the colour of the curtains was and what the matting was that was on the floor and so on. And it struck me that if you were to try and combine both getting under the skin of a person, which I was hopeful that with the Duke of Monmouth could be done, with making sense of the politics of the time and hopefully a way that made sense of them and unpicked them rather than presenting a whole lot of kind of complicated sounding acts of parliament, and then could really paint a picture for your reader of, if you were walking through London in January 1683, you know, what was it like? And this is when the Thames froze, for instance, it's a moment when the Duke of Monmouth was leaving for exile. And the thought that he was leaving for exile, not just on any old day, but literally as the water on the Thames was freezing so solidly across that a great frost fair was starting there and bear baiting was happening on the Thames and the, the great oak trees of the parks were literally splitting as the temperatures dropped so low. It seemed to me not simply to be a kind of colourful padding, but to be something that, that tried to, you know, draw you into what that world was like and in the context in which these things were happening. Because as we know in our own lives, nothing today happens in a vacuum. You know, all the excitement about change that's going on across the world at the moment is all being played out in a context where we're aware of a wider environment, we're aware of what the sort of human context of these things are. You know, your new president is an intensely human character and that's something that is relevant over and above whatever a political program might be. So anyway, I was trying to take all those things together, um, which it seemed to me both would make more sense of the events that were happening, but also for a reader would be a hopefully a kind of rich experience as far as, as reading and gaining enjoyment from reading goes. Speaking of that idea of you bringing this human feeling to the book and to your research. I read one review and in it, they use a term that I don't think I've ever read or would read for a male historian who admires his subject, who puts this feeling into it. The reviewer twice refers to you as weak in the knees over James Scott. And that prompted me to wonder what challenges you faced as a woman in the field. And when some people still say historian or still hear historian, they're thinking of the tweed arm patches and the ascot and faintly smelling of pipe smoke. What was that like? Yeah, it's a very interesting observation of yours. I hadn't actually thought that thought, but of course you're quite right. I mean, it is a rather patronizing thing to say in which you, about an author's approach to their subject. I think that, you know, I think I'm pleased that people read the book. And I, I sort of felt about that, that, I felt that there was a genuine, I mean, putting aside the, sort of the sexist language of it, I thought that the, that the reviewer made an interesting point, which made me reflect, which is to say, do you and did I as a biographer fall the risk of becoming so absorbed by your subject that a bit like a child or something, you start only being able to see their, their virtues and find all sorts of convenient excuses for their vices? It's a good question to ask yourself as a biographer, and I think that 
I hope that I have been even-handed in it, but it's a fair comment. I do think that the sexism thing is interesting. And somebody said to me the other day, uh, a fellow female historian, interestingly, said it, it's interesting that you've written a book about a man. I thought, you know, you might want to write about women. And I said, well... Yes, women in it. <laughs> you have to be a soldier to write about war. Do you have to be a, mm-hmm. you know, a, of a particular ethnicity to write about that? You know, do you have to be French to write about France? I don't think that follows. And in fact, I slightly... I wanted to write about a person, and that's what I was trying to do. And I also think that one of the things that's really important to register is that it's very easy for historians, who on the whole are a bookish lot, you know, we don't spend a lot of time galloping around on horses, we do spend quite a lot of time in dusty archives, to favour people who accomplish in a context that we recognise and respect, which is to say we like people who are clever, we like people whose medium is the written word, we like people who make intellectual leaps, changes to an intellectual world, whether it's political or social or whatever. And we tend to undervalue people whose forte might be might be one that isn't familiar to us, like horsemanship is an interesting example for the Middle Ages and this period, which is to say, in the 17th century, being good on a horse was considered to be just about the best accomplishment you could ever have. We now don't think that's very important. And we historians certainly don't think that's very important, because on the whole, historians don't even know which side of the horse is the front. (laughs) So there is an interesting thing, which is the extent to which a person like the Duke of Monmouth, who's career and success and reputation was tied up so very much in being handsome, in being charming, in being well-dressed, in being a leader of taste and fashion, for those things to be considered not simply not terribly important, but actively actively the sign of someone rather ridiculous, which I think is, is, is what he's been the victim of. I think that's a very a dangerous thing and something we have to really recognise. So in then writing a book about somebody, which I was trying to do, which tries to not to sort of apologise for the fact that everyone said the Duke of Monmouth was terribly good looking or to dismiss it as being relevant, but to say it was incredibly relevant because he was a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And part, as we know, we must know that of all people, part of the appeal and the charisma and the power of celebrities is the extent to which we want to gaze on them because it gives us such fulfilment to do that. So all of which is rather a long way of saying that I think that probably that reviewer and talking about the week at the knees thing was reflecting or was, was reflecting the extent to which I talk about him being handsome and so on, which I was saying not so much because, you know, I think he's so handsome. I mean, I've never met him. I, I can only see him through the eyes of his contemporaries, really. And it was their view that he was all these things, which was such an important part of the cocktail, which made him famous at the time and crucially, crucially made ordinary people, ordinary people who lived very challenging lives, being weavers or farmers in the West Country of England, rise up and take up arms to support him because he had a a charisma for them, which was enough to compel them to do that. So... I don't think it's just a kind of girlish crush, I hope, I think, and believe it's about identifying the, the makeup of a person's success or power. We shouldn't forget, I'm thinking as you're speaking about him being handsome, this is a time people will be running around with smallpox scars on their faces and not a lot of great dentistry out there. So it would be significant if you were somebody that came through a town or somebody especially who's trying to lead a rebellion here and you're a compelling figure. They talk about Washington being so much taller than everyone and how well he could dance. It It is significant. And as you spoke about that there, about that you didn't think of it, the angle of being a woman, I 
I thought of Margaret Thatcher saying when they asked her what it felt like to be a female prime minister that I have never experienced the alternative. So it's not as if you're constantly thinking of it while you're doing the research. And in the book, by the way, people who say, why wouldn't you write about women? Certainly there are women in there. The Duke's life, he has romantic liaisons. What was that like to dig up those stories? Were those easy to find the women? Did people also record them at the time or were those whole other sources? No, I mean, as I say, my technique was to capture everything that I could about him, which ranges from the pretty dry, you know, how he um, ran various departments that he was responsible for and his military tactics, to the very, very personal, which is his relationship with his family, his lovers, his wife, uh, and so on. And um, because he was a famous person, people wrote about him at the time, number one. Number two, because he was involved in this great rebellion, lots of things were kept which might otherwise, I suppose, have you know decayed away over time in the way of letters and all that kind of thing. They're pretty good sources there, not not at all complete. I mean, we know he had four illegitimate children himself with somebody called Eleanor Needham, who was his mistress in the 1670s. And she's a very shadowy figure. I don't know a great deal about her. She was a beauty. Um, her sister was also a, a sort of prominent beauty of the time. But, you know, I didn't get inside that relationship as a personal relationship except that it didn't seem to hold his interest for very long, or at least beyond the kind of physical. However, you know, he had been married as a child. He was 12 when he was betrothed to his wife because she was a great heiress and it was a, a tactical marriage organised by his father, so he would bring him a lot of money. And he had a very difficult relationship with his wife, which in itself was a very interesting thing to learn about and which you can read in their correspondence and in references made to it by other people at the time. These two who had been put together as children, as I say, and never developed even really a friendship, let alone anything more profound. But, you know, they had a number of children and she amazingly lived on for uh, several decades after his death. But the thing that was very striking was that after having played the field a great deal, and you know this was a time of tremendous promiscuity amongst the ruling elite, Charles II kind of led from the front for this, um, the Duke of Monmouth did properly fall in love, which was a fascinating thing when he was in his 30s. After many affairs, he then fell in love with somebody called Henrietta Wentworth, who was a young noblewoman. And uh, one of the most moving parts of writing this book was that when he was mounting the scaffold for his execution, which was the fate that befell him uh, after the rebellion was put down, the thing he wanted to do and he did on the scaffold was very straightforward, which was to declare to everybody there that his relationship with this woman, Henrietta Wentworth, was not sinful, um, was not adulterous, but was, they believed, in the eyes of God, a marriage in anything other than a sort of technical sense. And because he refused in the, the night before his execution to declare his relationship with her to be a sinful relationship, he was refused communion by the churchmen who were to attend on him, which if you're a, you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners will be, if you are a Christian, the, the idea of meeting your death without going through the cleansing process of confronting your sins and so on through the act of communion, then that's a very, very bad thing indeed. But he was so absolutely determined that her honour and her reputation should be safeguarded that he remained resolved that he would go without communion. And it's incredibly moving. And you you know, you feel a, a sense of the reality of people's lives 
in the past when you get that close to a relationship. And of course, he was a very unusual person, son of a king and member of the sort of highest elite. But, you know, relationships were, of course, as strong between people at any state of any status, but we know much less about them. So to me, the sense of him standing there and his devotion to her was incredibly powerful and one that I think also speaks of his strength of character um, in an almost unbearable set of circumstances. He's literally there on the scaffold and they're trying to get him to, well, they want him one thing to say the king is legitimate, that he failed to depose, and they want him to renounce this relationship. And he says, I will make no speeches. I come to die. And it's really a bold and moving story. You would believe that it was a novel if we didn't know that you have all this footnoted. <laughs> it's an amazing death and people take up for him and, and like him. Yet after he dies, his foes kind of get a hold of that story and they manage to make him sort of a cringing, jokish, unserious, perhaps like the Black Adder there, Hugh Laurie's character, silly, indulged guy. But he's really not. And it is very inspiring. And it's there is a love story in there, too. That's something that I don't know that many people today can relate to, being threatened with death or having such deep faith and such deep love. And all of that is at play here mm. in the book. I love it. Yes, yes, quite so. I have one final question. You write in The Last Royal Rebel that despite the Whigs' revival after 1688, when the king is finally deposed, there was no rehabilitation for the Duke of Monmouth. His sacrifice was forgotten, all this heroism we talked about. He became this airhead caricature. How do you hope readers will incorporate the Duke into their wider view of British history after they finish the last page? Uh, well... I suppose my hope is that, I mean, obviously there's a kind of uh, a sense of wanting to set right the record uh, in terms of a sort of what it feels to me like a great injustice done to him personally in that caricature that has represented him for so long. But I suppose more seriously, I just genuinely think that, you know, Monmouth's life was a crucial step in the process by which in this country and by extension in other places, the notion was challenged that the person who was in charge of a place, the king in, in the language of the time, should be king simply because he was the hereditary successor to the previous one, and that what people thought should have no part in it. So that old model, a hereditary mo model, uh, and where there was no kind of sense of a, a role for the people, was one which Monmouth was crucial to challenging because by being such an attractive figure, so charismatic, so adored by the population, which he was, he made it be not just something that became thinkable, the idea that somebody else might become king instead of the brother of the last person or the son of the last person, but that actually it was desirable that somebody somebody else who had characteristics that you approved of, whether it's Protestantism or heroism or charm or whatever it be, that that mattered and that in the words of John Locke, who was a friend of Monmouth, that government should be by consent of the governed. That shift is one which, you know, we've long understood the sort of political theory story of that, how, you know, John Locke wrote Two Treaties of Government and how that developed during the 18th century and the American Constitution had its place and so on. But actually understanding the sort of sociological phenomenon and how a charismatic person like the Duke of Monmouth standing there as a kind of gleaming alternative possibility, someone you might have as your king instead of someone you didn't like the look of at all, James II, because he was overbearing, he had a different religious persuasion to you and many other things. That's a really important shift. It's, if you like, the great change in 
the whole construct of power in the West over the last 500 years. What I would love to feel is that in reading this book, as well as enjoying it and coming away with a sort of more favourable, more balanced view of Monmouth, that people would also enjoy and gain something from seeing how in a movement becoming popular, a movement that said, we want to have a say in who's our king, um, this man, this very unusual man, how important he was to that and how without him things might have turned out completely differently and to remind us of the significance of people whose whose metier, whose language is not necessarily the straight political, the standing at the podium, but who are influential in other spheres, uh, as I think he was crucially. Uh, and the Glorious Revolution, the, you know, the beginning of our sort of modern form of government, which was essentially the supremacy of parliament, when you boil it down, was something that came to pass here shortly after Monmouth's death, or began shortly after Monmouth's death, in no small part because of his role in making an alternative way of doing things seem desirable. Well, Dr. Anna Kay, author of The Last Royal Rebel and director of the Landmark Trust, thank you for joining us to set the record straight on the Duke of Monmouth. I know I enjoyed meeting him. I hope he'll stare at me in a different way here now from the book <laughs> cover. I was just looking over at the bookshelf there where he's looking at me saying, did I do a good job? And, <laughs> you know, did, and did Dr. Kay do a good job? I think he's pleased with us. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck with the book and the Landmark Trust. I look forward to being able to stay in one of your sites someday. That's a great opportunity to live in history. Wonderful. It's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you. Again, the book is The Last Royal Rebel, The Life and Death of James, Duke of Monmouth. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate to Amazon next time you want to buy anything by going to historyauthor.com first and clicking through the Amazon banner. I know it's a couple extra clicks, but for every time you do that, amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. Once again, thanks to Dr. Anna Kay for her time and for introducing us to this fascinating man who made the last real challenge to the British crown. Please visit today's guest at annak.co.uk. That last name is K-E-A-Y. You can also follow her on Twitter at Anna Landmark. And you can check out the Landmark Trust online at landmarktrust.org.uk or at Landmark Trust on Twitter. And you can find us online on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Or if iTunes is your thing, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.